Hey, this is John Stevens, pastor of Chapelwood, and this is our weekly sermon podcast. I hope it will impact your heart and your life and help you grow closer to God. Check us out online at chapelwood.org. Thanks for tuning in. Please stand for the reading of the scripture. Today's passage is from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Again, he began to teach beside the lake. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the lake and sat there while the whole crowd was beside the lake on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and a hundredfold. And he said, let anyone with, with ears to hear listen. When he was alone, those who were around him, along with the 12, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, so that that they may not turn again and be forgotten. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, John. Worship at Chapelwood. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. I hope that you'll go to chapelwood.org home. That is the landing page for everyone who worships with us online. It's a place for you to register your attendance. It's a place for you to reach out to us and submit prayer requests. Also, you'll find there a link to our Lenten resources. Throughout the season of Lent, there are ways that you can be better plugged into Chapelwood and grow alongside of us. Also links for you to give and financially support our church. I'm glad you're with us today at Chapwood. God bless. Well, good morning. You know, during this Lenten season, as we are now entering this last week, we prepare for Easter next week. I hope that you will go to chapelwood.org slash Easter. You got a nice little shortcut to find that you can type in. It's got all the worship services that are there and the opportunities for this week for Holy Week. All of those things are listed. Next week for Easter, we have uh, more services offered. We have a 7 a.m. worship service out here in the Fountain Courtyard. Uh, And we also have the contemplative service that we normally have at 845. We'll still have our 830, 945 and 11.15 in here, and we've added a special, kind of an acoustic set uh, at 10 a.m. in the Fellowship Hall, and Richard and Sam Gandy will be leading worship in there uh, in a very intimate and good way, and then the recording from 9.45 of the sermon will be played 
in there. So it's a great place for family and friends to come and hang out. You can drink coffee and leave crumb donuts and stuff while you do church. It's kind of my favorite way to do church, actually. <clears throat> but as we've been going through this uh, Lenten season, and as we prepare into this Holy Week, I wanted to just sort of recap where we've been. And as disciples, as Christians, discipleship involves every aspect of our lives. And so we've been talking about including our bodies, our senses, the senses of, of our, this is the theme, sensing God, encountering God through these senses. And so we have invited ourselves to open up all that we are, all right, all of the senses to experience God in new ways. And we've sought to find ways to heighten our awareness of God in our world, in us, and all around us. So we've talked about sight. The first week we talked about sight, and in order to see God more clearly, we've got to identify and be ruthlessly honest about the filters that we have over our eyes, what shapes us and how we see the world. We all have filters, and so we have to be ruthlessly honest with unflinching rigor, be able to identify what those filters are, to be honest about that. Because Jesus makes clear that not seeing is a condition of all of humanity, even though we see. And this is why when we looked at the Gospel of John in John 9 that week, <clears throat> Jesus said, I came to separate those who see yet are blind from those who are blind yet they see. And he's talking about not only about physical sight, but spiritual sight as well. Our taste well, we had Bishop Mayambo in the week we did taste, and that was a great week for him to come because that would have been a hard one to preach about. But what I was going to bring and share with you that Sunday is that taste is all about savoring, relishing. Get, get that? It's kind of a, that's kind of punny. Relishing. Sitting in the moment with meaning, meaningful experience, all right, to lean in to the experience. The invitation to taste is the invitation to be present in that moment, to savor that moment, to savor the goodness of God in your life. That's what we do when we use our sense of taste. Our touch, we learn from the story of the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment that in order to touch, you have to be close. There's got to be proximity. And also, when Jesus is at work in your life and when you touch, when you reach out to touch, we never do it in anonymity. We are known. And so even though the woman touched Jesus in the huge crowd all around, he knew and sensed that he was touched in a unique way because the way that she touched, not all touch is the same. We talked about this. The way that she touched helped him to identify something special was happening. Someone was open and receptive. Hearing. We talked about the psalm where we hear <clears throat> because that we, it's being passed down from generation to generation. We have heard from those who have come before us. And then we hear in such a way as that we own it. It becomes ours. We appropriate it to our own spiritual life. It's a personal relationship. And then we share in such a way that the generations that come after us will hear. And the Bible talks about this, that that role for us to pass that along that's why hearing is so important, to pass the faith on to the next generations. But what was interesting as we are talking about this sermon series on senses, this morning at the 8.30 service, we had a guy who's been attending Chap Chapelwood for a long time, Samson, who joined today. He's deaf. And he sits right down here, and he has an app on his phone 
that uh, you'll see him looking at the whole time because it is interpreting what he cannot hear. And yet by him coming and receiving the vows of church membership, you get a sense in real time that we may not have access to physical hearing, but we hear spiritually. It's powerful living uh, example. And then our smell, we talked about how smell amplifies things in our lives in either good or bad ways. And also smell most closely connects us to our memories. Smell activates like memories in the past. We talked about that. And we contrasted the story of Lazarus and the smell of the stench of death and then the anointing of Mary, Jesus' feet with a costly perfume. She's anointing him for his death and yet the smells are different. Because Jesus will enter into and exit out of death in very different ways than Lazarus did. Death doesn't have power over him. And so these five senses are all working together. And we encounter God more fully when we can learn to bring them into our Christian discipleship and our spiritual life. But we also, when we use all of those senses together, we gain an extra sense. We gain a sixth sense. And no, I'm not talking about seeing dead people. We gain a sixth sense. To be able to perceive at a spiritual level, when we're able to move past the senses in, in physical, tangible ways, we move to something deeper. Some call it the heart, some call it perception, but it works at a deeper level than the other senses at a spiritual level. And today, on Palm Sunday, I want to spend just a few moments talking about the ways that Jesus leads us in to perceive things more deeply by how he uses parables and then talk specifically about what difference all of this makes today on Palm Sunday and how we experience Jesus in our lives today. But I will tell you about this sixth sense. I read a book years ago, and it's actually a fascinating book if you've never read it. It's called Gut Feelings, The Intelligence of the Unconscious. And it's by Gerd Gigerinzer. And it's this huge scientific kind of outlay of study. It's a leadership book. But he talks about how basically, I'll summarize it this way, that once you get your 10,000 hours in or your 20,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell says, sort of makes you proficient as a professional in something. Once you log those hours in, you are better off to trust your gut than to do more analysis and study. You're better off once you reach those hours. Now, if you don't have those hours in, your gut could lead you in the wrong direction. And one of the, my favorite scientific examples that he uses is he engages these golfers in putting. He takes professionals and amateurs, and he puts them at different, different, different distances, short putts or long putts, and he puts them on a clock. And what he found is that these short putts, if he puts them on a long clock, so no one could putt, they have to take a certain amount of time. They have to take like two and a half minutes. This is an eternity to make a putt. And the pros and the amateurs have to take that much time. And what they found is that the amateurs make a higher percentage of their putts based on what they would normally make. The pros actually make about the same percentage, actually decrease a little bit because they are thinking too much. And then when you reverse it and you say, you got to putt it in three seconds. Of course, the amateurs, horrible, way worse. Professionals actually do better without thinking about it. And so those gut feelings, that perception is a part of that. Now, in today's passage, Jesus is speaking in a parable. And he does this all the time. It was a very common way for Jesus to teach using parables. And in this parable, the sower, the seed, and the soil, he brings up this passage at the end from Isaiah 6. 
where he says that they may indeed look but not perceive, they may indeed listen but not understand. And so he's, he's, he's characterizing here the purpose of parables. Now, in the parallel passage to Mark 4 that we read today in Matthew 13, the disciples actually ask him about this parable and they ask him, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus says, well, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to the others, it has not been given to them. For those who have, more will be given. For those who have an abundance and from those who have nothing, even more will be taken away. <clears throat> He's talking about the understanding of perceiving, integrating at a spiritual level. He says again, the reason I speak to them in parables is that in seeing, they do not perceive. They see, but they're not able to go deeper to a level of spiritual perception. This is why Jesus speaks in parables. There are mysteries about God's kingdom that are not accessible in easy ways all the time or in the traditional sort of on-the-nose way, right? Just literal ways. You have to process at a deeper level. So our senses get us to be able to, to arrive at a place where our heart kicks in, our soul kicks in, our spirit kicks in to see here and things at a spiritual level. And they work in concert. And this is how we, we talk about opening the eyes or the ears of the heart or the soul when we use this language. This is the spiritual nature of our being. And so when Jesus is speaking about things like the kingdom of God, he's speaking about things like love and sacrifice and laying your life down and humility. He's talking about the kingdom of God that's not working with the same rules as the kingdom that they know. It's, it's inverted. And that power comes in death and resurrection. And so they want to fight. And he's like, oh, I'm going to fight. But it's going to be in a different way, a different place, an eternal battle over death. And so these mysteries are not easily pried into through intellectual analysis. When Jesus tells a parable, if we sit down and do the grammar structure and we try to over-literalize things, we're not going to experience the fullest meaning of the story in the parable. We see this happen all the time. There were certain people who got it. They understood. They saw. They heard. And they believed. And even in the Gospel of John, it says they know, which was tied into faith and belief. But others walked away and Jesus said that he didn't reveal himself to them. He didn't perform the miracles they wanted him to perform because they only wanted them for their own purposes and they couldn't see, they couldn't hear, they didn't know, they didn't really believe. It's unpacked in, in the Gospel of John quite clearly. And so we have to enter into these words. We have to enter into the images. We have to enter into the symbols. We have to try it on like a, like a coat in our experience. Bring it into our prayer. Bring it into our contemplation, our meditation, our lives to get to the words and the ideas that are beneath the surface level. We listen to the parables. We allow them to unfold their meanings on their own terms. And this is that sixth sense, the key to understanding the words and the teachings of Jesus that are truly only open when we approach in this way with the heart. Now, Jesus tells this particular parable in order to help us with our spiritual perception so that we can see what is real about God, what is real about our lives, ourselves, how we grow, how we receive God's goodness and mercy, and in order that we might live as Christ followers in the world. But again, it's not to be taken literally. 
The first thing that you would find out if you talk to an, an ag professor at Texas A&M is that this guy's a horrible farmer, right? Anybody who knows farming knows this is horrible. This is horrible. You're going to take this seed that you bought and you're just going to throw it everywhere. I mean, on the highway, <laughs> on the driveway, you know, yeah, on the, on the some good ground, but some thorny ground and throw it into the trees, throw it in all over the place. I mean, he's just scattering it everywhere. And so what we know right away is that it's a story about farming and it is not a story about farming. I used to try to break all this down, each part and what it means when I was young, the parable, the sower, the seeds, the soil. But it's not so much to be parsed and analyzed and broken down as to be entered into, to be prayed, to be meditated upon. The sower scatters with abundance. The sower is the God figure in the story. The sower is scattering abundantly, scattering recklessly, scattering in places where he knows the seed is probably not going to take root. And, and we kind of now begin to see the characteristic of God and his generosity, his extravagance, his willingness to expend resources even when there is little hope for return. That becomes a model for us in our spiritual life. This is who God is. Scripture says that God in this moment acts exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine. The sower is God is just one who scatters to every corner, in every place, in every condition. This should teach us something. That if we're going to be followers and imitators of Christ, this should teach us something. And then there's the soils. And they usually trip, they used to trip me up, right? Because when I was younger and I was studying the Bible, I was thinking, okay, well, my first impulse to go here is that soil are certain types of people. And I have to assign them to certain types of people. Kind of an old trope. There's four kinds of people in the world. You know, there's hard pan people. You know who they are. Let's talk about them. Hard pan people. Just not open at all. I mean, seed goes, they don't care. It doesn't do anything. Then there's the people with the thorns in their lives, and we know who they are. They're people who have lots of money and resources and riches, and just, they let things strangle them. We know who they, those people are. You know those people I'm talking about? Those, those people? And then there's the rocky soil, yeah, and then there's things that go down, but they don't, they're not very deep people. You know, kind of shallow people. You know who those people are. I mean, not me, but other people. There's shallow people that's there. And then there's good soil. Well, I don't want to be, I don't want to sound arrogant or anything, but you know, good soil, people like me. <laughs> I, I'm, actually, I'm actually playing you right now, okay? Uh, <laughs> I'm playing all of us. This is what we do. And we, we began to assign these soils to other kinds of people. And then we start to evaluate people in their lives. I wonder what kind of soil they are. Well, I don't like them, so they got to be one of those bad ones. Maybe, maybe if we went a little deeper into the parable, maybe if we sort of wrestled with it, meditated it, prayed about it, what we would discover is that the soil is not so much different kinds of people as different parts of us. 
all of those soils are in the field of my life. And all four of those soils are in the field of your life. I mean, think about it. It makes common sense. Sometimes, you know, God's word and grace and mercy and love and extravagance and forgiveness and reconciliation gets scattered in my life. And, and sometimes I let it take root and seed and flourish and blossom and produce fruit. And sometimes I don't. It depends on who I'm having to deal with that afternoon. It depends on what's going on in my life and how constrained or constricted or how even in my own life sometimes about some things, I'm a little shallow. I don't have a lot of depth. Does that make sense? And so if we go at it at a much deeper level, then all of a sudden we're looking at ourselves instead of looking at everybody else. Now transformation can occur. Now we can be transformed into the likeness of God. All right, so what does all of this have to do with today and Palm Sunday? Because Palm Sunday is not a parable, but it is a challenge of our perception. And today, what we are remembering, celebrating, if you will, this Sunday has two, two purposes to it. There's, a, there's the Palm celebration where we celebrate Jesus riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. And then there's the Passion Sundays, sort of the knowing where we're headed and it's not going to be a good week. It's going to be a heavy, heavy week. Now, in order to understand how this will fit to our spiritual perception, you have to understand the history, the historical context of what happens here. They, the Israelites the, the, in, in Israel, they are controlled by the Roman government. They are occupied by Rome. And ever since about 100 years before, the 150 years before this, when the Maccabees revolted and had an independence for about 100 years, the Romans, over the turnover of the Greeks, the Romans came in and took over. And ever since that moment, there have been Jews who have been conspiring to overthrow the Romans. They're called zealots. And there's a lot of them. And we find out in the Bible that some of Jesus' disciples are a part of this ideological movement. And they are hoping and expecting that Jesus will be, yes, the Messiah that's talked about in the Old Testament, that's laid out the king who will be the, the follower, the inheritor of the king of David, the new David. And for them, that means he will be literally a king who will overthrow Roman oppression and sit on his own throne. I mean, after all, he's been talking about a kingdom. He's been talking about the kingdom of God. He's been talking about all of this stuff. Look at all the followers he has. Look at how many people are around him. And now he comes into Jerusalem. This is significant because at the Passover, the Passover is the meal where the Israelites remember and celebrate God delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. And every Passover, right before Passover, the Roman governor rides a white stallion with a battalion of soldiers. And as the Passover, as the people are gathering together to prepare for the Passover, they ride in to assert once again their command and authority. I know that you believe this meal that you're going to have this week is going to remind you that you were delivered under oppression from Egypt, but we're going to remind you who's the boss here. And now we have Jesus Riding in the week of Passover on a donkey, not a white horse, but a donkey, the inversion of the power. Yes, he has power too, but a completely different kind of power. 
And they are beginning to think, these zealots, this could be the reality. He's coming in. Look at the crowds. Look at how they adore him. We've got the numbers now. We outnumber them. And it would only be a few days later that these same people, when they realized that Jesus was not going to sit on a throne that they had crafted, Jesus was not going to overthrow the Roman government. Jesus was going to live into his call and purpose and design and desire in a completely different way for his strength will be made perfect in his weakness. In his humility, he will lay his life down for the world and he will call upon us to take up our cross and follow him to the same outcome. And so these zealots uh, finally got to the place where they rousted the crowd up and when it was Jesus and Barabbas, Barabbas was a zealot, by the way. He was a murderer, a killer, and he was trying to overthrow the Roman government. Who do they pick? They pick the one that represents power, murder, violence, liberation in the ways that they define it. Perception. But even the disciples, even the disciples had to discover all of this the hard way through their own denial, through their own hiding, through their own fear, ultimately seeing the risen Lord in the upper room again, ultimately receiving the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit, to now on the other side of resurrection get it. Oh, he wasn't talking about raising an army. He wasn't talking about sitting on an earthly throne. And that says my time's up. I'm almost there. And he's not talking about that. He's talking about perceiving something at a much deeper level. And even the, even the disciples had to experience in this a new way. And so, now it comes to us. Today, and us, and Palm Sunday. We remember Jesus riding in. And we have to ask ourselves today, for our, in our own lives, in our own experience, in our own context, who is Jesus? Who are we expecting him to be? And how much of that is shaped by who Jesus really is and what he's about and what he taught and what he modeled and how he lived his life and how he gave his life? And how much of that is shaped by who we want Jesus to be and whose side we want Jesus to be on? Palm Sunday is that big question of, am I shaping the identity of Jesus or is Jesus shaping my identity is he defined by us for our purposes and our cultural beliefs is he leading us something above and beyond what we can even imagine counter to all the things going on around us all the division and the noise that wants to pull us in to use their language are, are ported on us and and every time we say, that's not, our, that's not our language. People are like, well, you're just, you're just not standing up. You're just not taking a stand. I am taking a stand. I'm taking a stand with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who came in on Palm Sunday as a king who would lay his life down for the world. I am taking a stand. It's just not the stand some people want me to take. 
can we see beyond what is? Can we perceive in a way that lays down our own agendas, our own predisposed systems of belief to understand that there is a side, it's time to declare a king, a different kind of king, an eternal king. Can we see? How do we see? I'll share just a powerful story with you. Um, so this past week, well, one of the things we're doing is coming up in May is confirmation. All of our sixth graders will go through confirmation and be confirmed, and they'll make their public declaration of their faith, join the church. And I've met with a couple already. I've got a few more that I'm going to meet with. And this week, I met with a young guy, and his name's Jack. And one of the things we do, we talk about confirmation, what they've learned, what they've experienced, what they like, what they didn't like, all this kind of stuff. And I, then I finally just said, all right, you got me. Do you have a question? Like any question, no, don't hold back. You got a question for me? And he had two questions. And they were both amazing, awesome questions. So, I mean, the first one was like, well, what's the difference between Methodist Christians and other Christians? What makes us Methodists unique or special? I said, that's a great question, especially nowadays. Not that you know all the stuff going on, but I think it's awesome. This is amazing. And then the second question he asked was, why aren't there miracles anymore? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, Jesus walked around and he did all these miracles. Why are there no more miracles? And I said, oh, Jack, <laughs> that's a great question. I said, there are still miracles. Every day there are miracles. I said, it's a little harder to follow them and track them because when Jesus was here, you just followed him. And wherever he went, that was where the miracles were going to take place. But nowadays, you have to pay a little bit more attention. I told him a story. Um, a guy in our church, we were just praying here a minute ago, Ken, and he texted, I think it was March 14th, and that his daughter, Teresa, was at work in the gym and both of her ventricles in her heart, the right and the left, they just stopped working. And they resuscitated her, got her to the hospital, put her on the ECMO machine, intubated her, had this exterior pump system to make her heart work. Basically, she's living on machines. Now, I don't know how much you know about biology or medicine. I know enough to be dangerous, but I can tell you, when your ventricles stop working, you stop working. And the doctors tested, is it a virus, is it a bacteria, is it some kind of cardiomyopathy or some, some thing that's attacked the heart that couldn't find any evidence of anything. They have no idea what to do. And the options before you are not very good. And the doctors told them that. This doesn't look good. I can't, I can't explain to you the gravity and the seriousness of half of a human's heart stop working and only working from machines. I got a text from Ken this week. It was Teresa at home with her husband and their kids sitting in her lap with a smile on her face. And every doctor said, I, I don't know how to tell you, anything other than this is a miracle. They still happen if you pay attention. If you're able to kind of move past the limitations of some of our literal physical senses 
and let all of those things work together at a spiritual level in your heart, then yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget the look on Jack's face when he left my office. Miracles do happen. Let's pray. God, I pray today and every day that you would uh, continue to work in and through us in powerful ways. Lord, help us to open not just the five senses that you've given to us, but help them all work together to lead an openness of our heart and our spirit together. Lord, we want to experience you as you are and who you are, not who we want you to be. Because we know if we do that, our lives will be changed, this world will be changed, and everything the hope we long for, the peace we long for, the unity we long for, will start to become a reality. But we have to hold our ground by holding on to you. Lord, let us see Palm Sunday today with new eyes as we open ourselves to you. In the name of Christ, we pray.